Welcome to Heavy Strategy, where we're all about unanswered questions instead of unquestioned answers. But just to be a little bit different today, Greg and I are going to provide some answers in the form of our FU to FU, meaning folks have been following up and sending us questions and comments and feedback. And we would like to provide on this show a little bit of feedback to the feedback, so to speak. So you've got questions, we've got answers, or at least suggestions for more questions, because we prefer those unanswered questions. Now, before we get started with today's show, packetpushers.net slash FU, and that's where you can drop your follow-up in, uh, follow-up, and send it to us, and then we will receive it. We don't know, unless you give us your name and your email, we won't dialogue with you. We don't track you or collect any of your information, so you can drop it in anonymously. That's just great. We haven't brought any names here today, because nobody, there didn't seem to be any need, so you can feel free to do it tell us anything you like and don't forget that we're looking for guests uh, other speakers if you're somebody who's out there doing a thing that we've talked about and you're going and you're yelling at the at the screen of the car going no greg and jonah that's not how it's done come on the show and talk about it why don't you ask us and we can get together and record something where we discuss that because those are valuable conversations tell us why you think it's different and you know as always there's no right answer here the answer is whatever your answer is because every each situation is different we all use the same technology and the same tools but somehow we do it differently so let's go on with the first topic today jonah what do we got for our first fu Actually, I like this one because the person first says it was very interesting, but I have more questions than answers here. So first question is, is zero trust an actual standard or marketing buzzword along the lines of military grade encryption? The answer is yes, it's both a marketing buzzword and an actual standard. And let me explain. It actually started life as a marketing buzzword created by a forester analyst who was talking about a a hype a hypothetical approach to doing security. And the main insight that he had was he took this sort of vague and fuzzy concept of perimeterless security and said, what would that actually mean if you allowed the perimeter to go away and and actually implemented a, a whitelist approach to connections and communications? Meaning the old approach is everything is permitted unless expressly prohibited, what yeah. if you turn that on your head and 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 say everything is prohibited unless expressly permitted? How would the, what would that look like technically? And he started talking about this concept of zero trust. Yeah. That said, unlike every other marketing buzzword, such as for example, sassy, um, this one had legs and had power. And in fact, NIST in the United States ran with it and turned that into an actual architecture. There's a blueprint for implementing zero trust. There's a list of products that actually implement zero trust. We call it the NIST list. It's about 19 products the last time I looked. Mm. Go hit their site. Just Google NIST zero trust. You'll There's a, there's a cornucopia of good, precise definitions. I think from my point of view, the, the challenge with zero trust, if you're approaching it at... Um, at any level, is that you need to remember that it's actually a group of functional modules, if you like, or a group of functions brought together to make a zero-trust strategy. So adding a firewall isn't the entirety of zero-trust. It's just one thing. Creating, well, actually, take, taking away firewalls is yeah. the entirety of zero-trust, well, but we'll get to you, that. You still need some sort of firewalling. The argument is not a hardware firewall. It's probably a software firewall, and you're probably sending your content, directing your content into a CASB, 
you know, service to be scanned. You, you, you actually, you, you actually don't, and that's mm. in fact something we will we will get to in a second. Mm. Zero Trust does not prohibit the use of firewalls, but the very first company that I talked to that was implementing Zero Trust back in I want to say 2015 mm. had actually eliminated all firewalls by effectively putting Zero Trust in. Yes, and by the way. People will say that's not possible. It's not viable. I know who this company is, and I can guarantee you they have not had a serious breach in the past eight years. No, you can so absolutely get rid of firewalls provided you yeah. move further and further out to the edge. So there yeah. are three principles that I talk of for Zero Trust. One is to verify explicitly. That is whitelisting, and that's based on user identity. So we're not explicitly listing applications. We're verifying the user um, session on a workstation or on a smartphone or whatever. And that user identity, because you're not whitelisting applications or whitelisting traffic, which is the way we used to do it 10, 20 years ago, you have to have a, a very comprehensive user identity system. So you have to be like contextualize and you have to track the data. So once the user is authenticated, you have to say, oh, this application's part of their profile. This application's part of their profile. And when I say um, whitelisting the user identity. What I mean is if your user is normally based in the UK and then suddenly they're logging in from Brazil, that's not a user identity. You should flag that as a problem. You need some sort of identity management to, um, system that says, hang on, that's not a valid piece of user identity. Yeah. And Greg, can I just jump in and, and highlight something you just said? Mm. Not only are you do you have user identity, user applications, user device, user location, but I really want to zero in on this notion of user session. Mm. So one of the things that's unique about Zero Trust is that every individual session is authenticated multiple times during the course of the session. So you can literally, so let's say, for example, hypothetically, I am a mm. An admin, I have administrator privileges on Salesforce and I'm, a, I'm off there doing my administrator stuff and somewhere that administrator privilege got cut off for some reason in the middle of the session, I'm going to get knocked off. It's mm. not going to allow me to keep going. It's going to actually knock me off. So this notion of highly dynamic session based is also key to that user identity. But that was one of three principles. Greg, what are the other two? The other two are least privilege. So limit the user to minimal access to reduce your attack surface, which is the verbiage. But don't allow, just have like, um, the classic one is when we built IPsec VPNs, you know, a decade ago, once you were authenticated, then you would just had access to almost everything, except for maybe some custom networks that were deeply buried away behind firewalls. One of the, once you've got the user identity and you're doing session-based management of the user and what they can access, you can actually control which applications they access in the profile of the smartphone, the VPN or the edge client. Least privilege becomes the tool. So that's the second leg of zero trust of mine. And the last one with zero trust is that you have to assume that a breach happened today. And so your security posture isn't to prevent access, it's detect a breach in active mode. So not passively sitting there waiting for a breach detected. You want to be actively having tooling sitting on top of this system looking for a breach so that your security posture isn't about setting up firewalls to prevent a breach. You're saying there's a breach somewhere in my network, I just haven't found it yet. And if you come in with those three things, I think you'll cover most of the bits of zero trust like none of the things that i talk about there are product there are three thing questions that you that i ask myself is this a zero trust solution and for some people that's firewalls for some people that's a client on an edge sending traffic into a centralized cloud broker and then you know they've got flow management and, and a bunch of other tools doing the scanning and 
in some cases it's a campus network with wireless IDS and in other cases it's a data center with heuristics collection and flow records being collected there's no one answer here to zero trust it's it's a whole range of solutions bottled up into a zero trust strategy i hate myself for saying that zero trust strategy. yes you should you yeah. should oh well, i want to highlight one thing that i agree with and one thing i slightly disagree with mm. but the thing i agree with is this whole uh least privilege access management and i want to highlight one thing that zero trust is not mm. zero trust is not privileged access management but you have to have it in order to do zero trust at all well so in other words what i'm saying is zero trust doesn't mandate privileged access management, it assumes you have it. And, and that's a nuance. But what I found is a lot of organizations will sort of get down the path of implementing zero trust and then suddenly discover they don't have it. And what zero trust is great at is is instantiating the privileges that you've already given your users. But if you mm. have if you have over privileged your users, it may be able to show you that but it's not going to fix that. You need a tool to do that. And that's why there's a whole slew of privilege access managers, PAMs, that you can buy and that will work with your zero, chosen zero trust solution. So I just want to be clear, that's not something that comes along with zero trust. Where I will push back slightly is zero trust is in fact a set of products. And because I think a lot of people like to say, oh, it's a framework. It's a, it's a, it's an architecture. It's a, it's a vision. It's all that and a, a bunch perfume. of products. Exactly. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, exactly. it's a vague smell of identity management and content. Scale, yeah, yeah. You know? No, it's not. It is literally a bunch of products that you can put together in a way to instantiate it. And again, if you want to know which products, don't don't ask me. Go ask NIST. Look at the NIST list. As I said, the last time I looked, there were 19 of them. They may have certified a bunch more. Um, what you will find almost immediately is that some of those products overlap with other products. Some of those products don't overlap with other products. And the hard part is figuring out which combination of those products makes the most sense for you. Yeah. And, and it is a combination. That is one of the yeah. tricks is you're not likely yes. to get all of this. So yeah. uh, a lot of companies yeah. will have duo security for identity management from Cisco. They might be using Palo Alto, Prisma for the con for the cloud scanning for the content scanning and and brokering. or zscaler or yeah. appgate they're or all cloudflare yeah. and then all they might be there. using you know smartphones with clients on them but to do that they have an mdm to control the you know to manage the fleet I, actually them. actually quite typically you don't you don't necessarily need an mdm i'll get to that in a second mm. but i do want to get to the next question which i think is a it's mm. A legitimate sounding question, because now that we've talked about this, the yeah. person says, if it's not a standard that can be easily reviewed by experts, how in the world is that a good security idea? And <laughs> good just question. to be clear, really, honestly, that's a good challenge. Yeah. It is. That's why I think NIST actually formulated all of this, put it together in the form of an architecture and got it got beat on by experts. You're not giving anything away by having this architecture. You are, however, it is, however, an architecture that's been pretty thoroughly vetted by both mm -hmm. users and vendors. Um, and he goes on to, he or she goes on to ask, does that mean all applications are exposed to the public internet with no firewalling and are 100% responsible for their own security? Great. Well, the answer is they can be. And in fact, if you do zero trust correctly, that should be fine. And I know that sounds insane. But a lot of a lot of end devices will, in fact, have an agent on them. There are also agentless ways to do zero trust. As Greg said, you can start implementing it from the zero trust from the firewall. Hmm. But the idea of devices being responsible for their own security is absolutely no problem if and only if those devices, they're not allowed any access or any permissions if they don't have the proper setup, proper configuration hmm. and the proper permissions already. 
So in other words, if I try to log into your network and I have a, a rogue device, I don't get to do anything. Yeah. Everything turns me down. If I come in and I have a compromised device, the whole point is that your device will have software that will basically let you know that it's been compromised or worst case, the instant I start doing something that I'm not supposed to be allowed to do, it, I get shut down by the zero trust infrastructure. That's right. The, so the trick here is that most zero trust solutions assume a client is installed right at the edge of the network on the device. And most, but not all. They not are all. getting to clientless. Yeah. Sometimes it's SD-WAN and then sometimes people are doing stuff in the browser where they use the uh, cloud broker service as a proxy server. Right. And send it gets encapsulated into TLS tunnel off to the to the to the cloud service. So your applications may be on the internet, but they're not publicly available. That right. is, they may physically be on a public internet connection. They're probably behind a firewall so that you just stop random access to them. To, you know because that's what you want. But they are freely available to anybody on the internet, providing they're coming through your zero trust service. Exactly. And I think the thing to keep in mind is that to the degree that they provide a vulnerability into your network, Zero Trust will lock down that vulnerability at the moment it is attempted to exploit, be exploited, mm. which brings me back to something else, Greg, said, that you said earlier, which is you've got to assume that yeah. at any point in time you're actively being breached at that moment yeah. and your system better be doing two things. One is containing that breach and two is telling you about it. So you've got yeah. to shift from passive security tools, which is, you know, the old idea of a firewall, yep. to more proactive tools where you're doing content inspection and you're applying artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, statistical analysis to the raw data. You're decoding the data, uh, decrypting the data that users are sending backwards and forwards, and you're looking for threats and malware and viruses. You're looking for people hijacking sessions. And this is why we see the emergence of so many companies with cloud-hosted services. They've got the ability to do this at scale. You never know how much traffic you need to handle at a point in time. Uh, they can log what the users are seeing and what they're doing for you. Again, a very difficult thing to do on your own premises. And that is one way to say, I'm assuming I'm being breached. I'm now using proactive security to constantly scan everything that's going in between my users and my servers. And I am, if a breach happens, I am have a very high degree of finding it almost immediately. In a very, not six months later because some tool accidentally triggered that, you know, something, whatever, when they crossed a segmentation. Segmentation's part of this, but, you know, I'm not really going to go off of that because segmentation is user identity says principle of least privilege. Identity management is not radius as we used to know it. It's this person on this device, this device is an approved device as part of the system. They're coming from a location that they're supposed to come from. They're an approved user. They're part of the active directory or they're part of the or corporate, you know, whatever. It's it's more of a as I said, it's more of a perfume. But there is but there is an architecture which we'll get to in a second. Let's take a quick break from heavy strategy to tell you about Nomertes. A Russian pessimist looks at a bad situation and says things can't possibly get any worse. A Russian optimist looks at the same situation and says, oh yes, they can. Cybersecurity professionals need to be like the Russian optimist, constantly dreaming up new scenarios under which things can get worse. When that's done as an organized exercise, it's cyber wargaming. According to Nimurdi's research, the most successful cybersecurity organizations wargame four to six times per year. If that sounds intimidating, we can help. 
At Nemertes, we've been helping organizations with their cybersecurity challenges for over 20 years. We have a proven cyber wargaming methodology, co-developed with one of the leading researchers in military wargaming and training. Please visit Nemertes.com. Click on the Contact Us form and we'll set up a call. Let's pick up with Greg and Jana. Um, I just want to wrap up because it ties into what you just said. Um, the, the person that was asking these questions then said the two most common forms of exploitation are still phishing and e- business email compromise. Does zero trust solve either of these? And my response to that is partially. I, I would say it actually gives you a big leg up, but it's not going to 100 percent resolve them. And you're probably listening to this going, wait a second. How is how is having software on a client stopping a user from clicking on a bad link? Mm. And the answer is it doesn't. Mm. I can go and click on that bad link. My machine immediately gets infected and then the infection starts doing other stuff. And this is where the partially comes in, because depending on what that other stuff is that the that the malware is doing, Zero Trust will pick it up immediately and flag it or not pick it up and it will continue to propagate. And what I mean by that is if I start behaving in ways that are out of line with either my privileges, what I'm allowed to be doing, or what I'm normally doing, depending on what the environment looks like, Zero Trust is gonna pick that up and either stop me from doing anything harmful. So yeah, you can have malware on my machine, but it can't do anything. Or if you've you've augmented your Zero Trust with things like, uh, you know, behavioral threat analysis, You'll start noticing things like the scenario of, hey, Jonna never did this before. This is very unusual. She has the permissions to do it, but it's still pretty weird. So I'm going to flag it. And you're able to sort of jump in earlier yeah. than you might. Have a sense might of scale ever. here. Yeah. You might detect yeah. a, a, an infection in six hours, whereas before right. it used to take you six days. Because, or six minutes. You know, because or less. Yeah. You, but yeah. I, I mean, and just, just to be a thousand percent clear, there is a, a metric that we use with all of our clients, which is median total time to contain a breach. Hmm. What do we mean by that? Median, because because half above, half more than and half less than hmm. rather than mean for reasons I can get into. But total time to contain a breach is time to detect it, time to understand that it is in fact a breach and time to contain it, which in our world is not remediate the breach because full remediation takes a whole slew of policy review and product reconfiguration but just you know the way i call it is slam the slam the ball jar down on the bug yeah keep it from going anywhere else um so that may be disconnecting the infected user from the rest of the system sucks for the user but at least the rest of the system is okay. Yeah. And what you find is that the top companies out there have a median total time to contain of under two minutes, which means, yes, they may have long-running breaches that last six hours or six days or more, but they but the median is much, much less because they've implemented a hell of a lot of automation in there, including yeah. zero trust. You can make cars safer, but you can't prevent accidents. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So, exactly. so I would suggest that one of the things you start measuring and reporting on is median total time to contain. The other metric that I found is very useful is uh, serious incidents per per incident. So our definition of serious is that it affects in, affects the employees, the customers, or you have to tell the outside world about it. That's a serious incident. And what we've found is that on average, I want to say it's about 10%. Most companies see about 10% serious incidents per incident. Mm. For companies in extreme industries like financial services, that's down to 2%. Mm -hmm. So you want to be good by comparison to your industry, not necessarily good. It's a zombie, the zombie run. You don't need to be the best company, but you don't need to be better than the worst company. 
And you need to be better than the worst company in your industry. In your because, industry, yeah. Yeah, right. exactly. Uh, so before we get off the this guy's question or gal's questions, I would say do think in terms of median total time to contain and serious incidents per incident. We call them MTTC and SIPI. Mm-hmm. Well worth, you know, they're good boil up statistics to have. And they reflect, Greg, what you were saying about assume you are constantly under attack because you are. And that was just an abbreviation. But the main thing, I, the main takeaway from here is zero trust is somewhat amorphous. Uh, different organizations put assemble uh, products. I, 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 uh, no, I disagree. I think yeah. the main takeaway here is that there is an architecture for zero trust. There yes. are specified products for implementing the Sorry, architecture. Sorry, I was more talking about it from an implementation point of view. Yes, yeah, from an, you yes. can you okay. can come up with an agreed set of common goals around zero trust that are globally unique. Are globally specified but when it comes to saying i'm going to address this this way some people will choose you know this vendor and this vendor and this vendor and other people will go with a different set of vendors and so there's it's not like you go and buy a zero trust at the shop it's more of a yes uh, that if you go you know when that, you go to the restaurant you buy a starter and a main and a dessert it's more like yeah. that Although I would I would again stress that zero trust is not just a set of goals. There is an actual defined architecture which says there's a piece here and there's a piece mm-hmm. here. And there is either a client application that sits here or alternatively acceptable is a clientless approach that works this way. So the architecture itself, while being tech vendor agnostic, is technology specific because that's actually important for the next question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have to admit, I, I had to laugh because this, <laughs> this person who actually gave his name, but we're not going to give his name because, as Greg said, he started with, does anyone else find Jana insufferable? Yes, you should talk to my mother. She would (laughs) happily agree with you that I can Mm. be incredibly insufferable at times. Mm. But he goes on to say her just shouting over Greg, uh, she's just rude and wrong whilst being rude at that. So, Mm. Greg, I think you have some thoughts on that. Well, yeah, of course you are, but that's why yeah. we <laughs> that's why we started the podcast because you and I discussed something, and I thought we were having a really good. Now that I would just like to point out here that we also got uh, fu from people saying, um, "Greg, why are you talking over the top of Jonah? Why don't you let Jonah talk?" I just wanted to point out that this is actually the intent of the show. The idea is to have these debates and to literally take opposing positions and to argue strong opinions loosely held, potentially giving you ideas that you can then take to where you're going. Jonah is a full-time analyst and consultant in the industry. She owns a company that does research and advisory for a lot of firms. And of course, I'm in my side. You know what I'm doing because, uh, you know, doing the podcasting and I'm an analyst and I'm doing my research. But what we don't see is analysts arguing with each other. You never will yep. see a, a webinar where a, a forester and a gardener analyst actually justify their decisions or talk about what they know and why they think. They just produce a research paper and say it's all in there. You can have private one-on-one conversations with the analysts in those companies if you're paying very large fees. But what they won't in those sessions, what they won't do you is tell you how they got to that decision, like who influenced them, where did they get their reference material from, why did they think that, what was their thinking. And so we are going to argue like this and at sometimes Jonah is going to talk over the top of me and sometimes I'm going to talk over the top of Jonah and we both respect each other a huge deal because we be, keep publishing this show but do remember that you know it's not personal it's just yeah there, there is a space for this kind of debate in the old days 20 30 40 years ago these types of debates were normal people used to have debating clubs exactly where you, would do, you know even in technology, when I first became an analyst, I worked for a company that literally they took strong stands because the other analysts took very milk toast, milk 
toast stands mm. that ended up costing uh, costing their clients millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. You know, should I implement OS2 or, or this new Microsoft stuff? Well, it depends. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know what? That you know what? I know companies that spent millions of dollars on OS2 and then had to go back and and loop back and say well, dang, it looks like the industry's moved on with Microsoft. And by the way, y'all know I'm not a Microsoft. Fan, but, <laughs> yeah. but the point the point is that really there is there is room in the industry for somebody to sit down and say, yes, this is the way it is. Yeah. Um, which kind of brings me to the next point, uh, which is the same person uh, really. I, I, I can't really read the comment because it goes on for some distance, but essentially it uh, is taking objection to the fact that I state that um, zero trust is an architecture. Uh, you know, Jana is just wrong. It is not an architecture. Well, unfortunately, I am correct. Feel free to go look up well, NIST and yeah. look up the NIST architecture mm -hmm. defined by NIST with the products that instantiate the architecture. That said, he goes on to say something that I will give him a point on, which is on the CISA directive that we were both talking about. Mm -hmm. He makes the point that, yes, you can, in fact, um, you can, in fact, use out of band management with zero trust. Yes, you can. And in fact, it's one of those things that you can do with, for example, you can and in fact should use privileged access management with zero trust, but neither of them are called for by zero trust. And that's the main point. There's an assumption that you're doing things right outside the, the bailiwick of zero trust. Yeah. And if doing things right can include, and I just want to be clear about this, can include out of band management. Okay. So no, no disagreement there. However, zero trust is an architecture and it doesn't explicitly call for out of band. Yeah. Now that is as long as you regard NIST as a source of viable strategy and or architecture. It's not strategy art, art, okay, Yes. Right. And that's and that's a you know, that's a fair There uh, are a lot of people out there who would only turn to a brand name vendor for architectures, approved architectures. Well no or turn to no, a reseller. No. I agree with you, by the way. I'm not an entire I'm not a huge fan of NIST. I I don't think NIST is entirely captured by the vendors, like I've, some of the other standards bodies, like the IEEE is almost completely yeah, yeah, yeah. Captive by, captured by the vendors. The IETF is partially captured by vendors and their representatives who drive most of the standards in a particular direction or so forth. You know, one of the questions you should ask yourself, if NIST is a source of an architecture, is that a viable architecture that we should... Because anybody can put oh. out an architecture. I could write one yeah, tomorrow yeah. for Zero Trust and, you know, who says exactly. my architecture is viable and, you know, whatever. So questioning the source is, is always a good question. I think um, NIST is a modest organization at BET. It's the National Institute for Standards Institute and, and Technology. And technology. Yeah. Well, it's a and US I, I government will... body. And yes. it reflects U.S. interests very much. So, well, two two comments on this. Number one, uh, and I think maybe we need uh, we need uh, an episode on this because uh, I disagree rather strongly that an, that an architecture for a technology concept comes from a vendor. The yeah. vendor's architecture is how they enabled this concept. It's so, usually how they Palo implement Al an architecture. These are the products Pal where we can implement right, this. Right, right, right. Yeah. But the architecture, uh, an architecture, should, in my view, be vendor agnostic. Um, it should not actually. And when I say vendor agnostic, it, you can have an architecture and should have an architecture that does not say we're using Microsoft Azure here and Palo Alto there. It should say we're using cloud services here and, you know, whatever they're doing mm. there. So getting back to this, I think an architecture is vendor agnostic. Mm. Um, the question of whether NIST is a credible source. To be honest, I know how they work. What they do is they farm out the development of architectures and things like that to consultants like me because mm. we've helped them with different areas of their cybersecurity architecture. So 
uh, you know, it's it's a bit circular. I yeah, did not develop. I, guess... I did not develop the the zero trust architecture for NIST, but I could have. Yeah. So and then, I guess my point it... was, whenever yeah. you see an architecture that's yeah. you know being referred to, the question is, what's the source of the architecture? Has it been captured by vendors? Is the organization, right. you know, uh, yeah. has a history of producing architectures that are adopted and widely accepted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, that's all the questions that I'm asking. It's more about unanswered questions rather than saying that it is or it isn't. That was really what I was trying to point out. And the first thing that I always think to myself is, oh, so you've defined an architecture. Well, what's your motivations for defining an architecture and saying it's the best one in the world? And I think we really need to talk about what an architecture is because I just was going nah, through this we've with got a plenty client. of shows in the back catalog. No, 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 no. no. We, I, I was talking with a client and I, and I, I was stunned because they kept falling into the, uh, falling into conflating processes with architecture, which is a very interesting conversation. When does right, a process stop go. and an architecture begin? But that's for a later episode. I Let's think talk about the. We did a show just recently, Heavy Strategy Fifty, which was the tech job debacle, where we talked about. Oh yeah. We talk about the huge number of layoffs that happened. We got. But some didn't follow that person from... just? Didn't they just say nice things? I forgot. Well, Frank said uh, the demand for remote jobs is off the charts, even more with the, right. than with the pandemic. I'm talking to HR people who had an IP position posted and in a week received 300 applications. Other companies have been so overwhelmed with the applications that they are returning these positions back to the office because there's so many people looking for jobs. In other words, they moved those to hybrid or remote after the pandemic. So he, Frank is saying there's sort of chaotic, chaotic times at these past months. Uh, thanks for the show. Heavy Strategy is one of, if not my favorite podcast at the moment. High praise. Thank you very much. Um, so I think what you, what he's seeing there is that with all the layoffs, he's confirming our position on one side saying there's so many applicants for any job, particularly remote work. So it, it confirms what we said. People want remote work. They don't want to be going into the office. But at the same time, so many people are applying for jobs that people can now demand that they come back to the office. So if you get 300 applicants for a job and 10 of them are willing to come into the office, maybe, and you particularly want people coming into the office, you get to choose the 10 people. You know, you only interview the 10 people who are willing to work in the office. You write that into the conditions. So maybe, maybe there's still more to play out in that. I think there absolutely is, Greg. And the way I see it is, um, you know, I've always wondered why the big tech companies that make remote working technology themselves always demand that their employees come into the office. That always yeah. struck me as funny. Uh, it really is, as we said, all about control. Yeah. The big companies want to control their employees at a level that smaller, newer, more innovative companies don't care about. Yeah. And what I expect is going to happen. I mean, what you're seeing is Google is Google laid off however many, you know, tens of thousands of people and then said everybody else back into the office. Yeah. Right. Well, guess what those people are going to go do? They are, you know, some of them are going to come back into the office. Some of them are going to find jobs outside of tech. Some of them are going to find jobs in tech, but working for, say, banks where they can be remote. But some of them are going to go start their own competitors to Google. And they will not require anyone to be in the office. And they'll have a, so, they'll have a cost advantage, no offices, no exactly, snacks. Exactly. No, exactly. Yeah. Because essentially what you're seeing is people, it's it's the, you know, sunk cost debacle here. Yeah. People have, well, people and, have, companies have made huge investments in real estate and they just don't want to let those investments go. And the reverse of that question is that the companies who are saying come into the office believe that there's a productivity benefit to that, which I think may be true but it's more likely an acceptance of the fact that your internal tools are so bad or your internal communications or your internal structure is so bad that the only way it works is if people come into the office and get face-to-face -face time, right? So 
I really don't know, Greg. I've oh. had very opinionated stances on this in past, largely informed by the fact that I've been running a highly productive company that's entirely virtual for over 20 years. Yeah. Um, but recently I read something that set me back on my heels a little yeah. bit because apparently the Germans, uh, the Germans always figured everything out. The German military guys back in, I think, the 1800s figured out that there's four categories of people across two axes, smart and stupid and lazy and industrious. Yeah. And what I found was really interesting was they said, smart, industrious people, those are great. Those are your staff officers. Make them go work. Yeah. Smart, lazy people, those are the ones, those are your generals. Put them in charge. Uh, stupid and industrious people, get rid of them. They're causing all sorts of problems in your organization. And, and stupid and lazy people, they're fine. Just beat the crap out of them and they will produce. I guess what I hadn't realized was that the percentage of stupid, lazy people in many organizations is higher than I well, wanted. Well, stupid, to. industrious, I think is no stupid, stupid and lazy. Because stupid and lazy, you have to beat the crap out of to get work done. Yeah, you and need that's to. Very, that's very hard to do remotely. Yeah. And stupid and industrious um, yeah. means people who work, but it's not against work, you. Or yes, it's they're just yeah. working for the sake of working. Or right. That is actually not a problem remotely because you can just ignore them, but mm. you really should get rid of them. But it's the stupid, lazy people that need to be that need to be beaten to produce that you have to have in the office. So my question to you is, if you really see a productivity improvement when everybody's in the office and you can beat the crap out of them, virtually speaking, by glaring at them when they're standing around the hallways, um, why are you hiring stupid and lazy people? <laughs> well, because you don't have systems to detect them and to flush them out of your system. And, and you don't have a culture and you don't have a culture that that uh, acknowledges and rejoices in smart, smart, lazy and smart, hardworking, which are two different things. Smart, and lazy is good. That was my big takeaway from this. And the darn Germans have figured out everything. They have a system for everything. Sometimes. They're mostly they got it from Japan these days. Well, on that note, let's wrap this up for today. That's our time limit. We're running at 30 minutes. This has been Heavy Strategy, where we try and come up with questions. We don't try and answer them. We generally just talk about it so that you can take our unanswered questions and create your own answers. Jonah, where can people find you on the internet? Please come and hit us up at nemertes.com. If you want to continue the dialogue, there is a tab that says community. Join our community. Nemertes is spelled N like nimble, E-M like mermaid, E-R-T like Thomas, E-S like Sam, nemertes.com. Come find us. And Greg, what about yourself? Of course, this has been Packet Pushes. You can find us over on packetpushes.net. I'm on Twitter as Ethereal Mind. I am, uh, Twitter is a dumpster fire, but it's still way, way better than the alternatives, no matter, tell me what you, whatever you like. So I will be there. I'm starting to haunt LinkedIn. I don't like it. So haunting would be about the best way to describe it, but I'm there. You can connect to me and you can connect to Jonah. As always, it's been a privilege to bring you this content. Thanks very much for this. And we'll look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks.